Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. A lot of times, birders will talk about interactions between birds and the symbiotic relationships between one species and another. Well, it was fun today talking to my guest. Larry Hubble is my guest in the episode today. Larry is a Seattle-area birder who really birds extensively in the Union Bay area. Union Bay is near the north end of Lake Washington, uh, where the University of Washington is and the Arboretum, and it's a really cool area. Uh, I think of it as the Montlake Phil, but uh, Larry keyed me in as to what the fill is and how the whole uh, Union Bay is more than just Montlake Phil, and, and, and that's all, all cool. But the one of the fun things today is I often ask my uh, guests for about their birding story. Who are some influential people and how did you get started in birding? Well, it turns out that one of my previous guests, Marcus Ronig, from episode number 64, Marcus and his wife Heather were my guests in episode 64. Well, Marcus was a college roommate of Larry and got Larry into birding. Uh, so that's kind of a cool story. And then Dennis Paulson, uh, who is uh, the teacher of the master birding class at Seattle Audubon and just a fabulous birder and naturalist in Washington, uh, was my guest in episode number 68. And Larry mentions uh, the influence of Marcus taking the master birding class and then decades later him taking the master birding class from Dennis. Uh, so it's kind of fun to see the how you know, birders influence other birders uh, and the, the symbiotic sort of relationship between birders and how we nurture each other and help each other along. So I really enjoyed that. I hope you enjoy hearing Larry's story today. I think conservation stories and birding stories and other natural history stories all sort of meld together in this episode. I hope you enjoy it. So help me welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast, Larry Hubble. Larry, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. It should be fun. I first learned about you. Uh, I mean, I get tweeters, the Washington uh, Birding Listserv, and you often post uh, on tweeters about your Union Bay Watch blog uh, episodes that you publish. And so I've sort of known about you and followed that, you know, intermittently over the years. I always thought, no, I ought to meet this guy sometime. I'll get to meet you online. So tell me about this Union Bay Watch uh, blog that you publish and, and how did that come about? And it's a cool thing. Well, thank you. Uh, I'll start by just saying a little bit about Union Bay to help explain why uh, the blog is, exists. But Union Bay is, is unique in that it's a large shallow body of water on Lake Washington and it has the largest marshes left in Seattle. Uh, this creates an amazing abundance of life, especially for a bay that's nearly surrounded by the city. Because the bay is shallow, it supports aquatic vegetation, like, uh, for instance, the invasive European milfoil, which in turn supports diving and dabbling ducks, and in the winter, even trumpeter swans visit Union Bay. Since 1916, when Montlake Cut was opened, Union Bay became the exit for the Lake Washington watershed. The water empties through the cut, through Lake Union, and out the Ballard Locks into Puget Sound. Environmentally, the, the Union Bay natural area on the north side, the Arboretum, Marsh Island, and Foster Islands, and the related marsh on the south side have had a very large positive impact. On the negative side, the, the ancient salmon runs are virtually gone. For the last 60 years, uh, the 520 highway runoff has flowed directly into the lake. And just this last week, we learned how uh, the particulates from tires are impacting the salmon. So it's not surprising that, uh, that the runs aren't what they used to be. 
plus uh, the, the diverting of water from Ravenna Creek and Arboretum Creek into the combined sewer overflow system has not helped. And in addition, underground pipes have been installed on both of those creeks, but in particular Arboretum Creek, so that it stops any fish from entering the stream. Hmm. But the mission of my blog, to get to that, is to promote the appreciation of wildlife and increase harmony between humanity and nature. I live very close to Union Bay, and it's just such an incredible experience because of the amount of life that is there. And I hope through the blog to show the citizens of Seattle the, the beauty of life around the bay, and I hope that they will be inspired to help and restore nature in the city. Very cool. I, I have to say, your your blog posts tend to be a story, a pictorial story. You know, nice photography and sort of telling some sort of a compelling story about usually one bird species. It seems like maybe it's maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but that that's what it seems like to me. So it's a uh, an interesting read for a birder but also just an interesting read for sort of a, anyone who has any interest in the area or the birds or the environment or that sort of thing. Yeah, it's uh, part of the connection I want to build is not just the connection to say, oh, birds are beautiful, but to actually have people look at a bird and see a bird, you know, every day when they pass by and to start to understand that that bird has a territory and a mate and belongs in this area, is raising young, finding food, living a life. And all of a sudden you start to look at them as your neighbors. They, they belong here just like we do. And uh, probably the, the biggest first experience along this line was way back in 2011, just before I started the blog in August, there's a bald eagle, everybody called him Eddie, who uh, used to sit out on 520. And he was hit by a bus, and, and uh, he didn't make it. And uh, that was about the time I had my first camera, first lens, and I, I was starting to look around just after that. And I got interested and curious of, well, what would Eddie's mate do? Uh, I thought of the name Ava for her, and so I started watching the nest and, and keeping an eye on it. And within a month, uh, she had taken a new mate, which uh, I called Albert, and uh, I, I got to watch them throughout the, the winter and the spring. And then I got mm -hmm. some of the very first photos of their young in the nest. And I wrote a post called Life After Eddie on my blog. And okay. that was kind of the first time where I started to really connect with a particular set of birds, not just, you know, taking photos of species in general, but of particular birds and watching them. And uh, over the years, it's evolved. There's, there's the story of stories of Chester and Lacey, the osprey that uh, nested in the Union Bay Natural Area, probably the first osprey to nest there in 100 years. Oh. There's uh, the stories of Elvis, the, the woodpecker, who had a unique mark on his neck, so I could tell it was always him. Mm -hmm. And over the last nine years, he's been replaced, but the local pair goes on, and uh, they've nested in the area for nine years in a row. And I, I've learned over the time that every nest that they've built has been inside of a dead or dying red alder tree. Oh. And uh, so it, it kind of, even though red alders are not really high on anybody's list of trees to have, mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're very important to the woodpeckers. And so, and they have to be, you know, 40, 50 years old uh, at the end of their life cycle when they're, they're starting mm -hmm. to die and starting to get soft. And that's when the woodpeckers like them. 
Sure. Red alder is a nitrogen-fixing plant, too, so they're important to uh, soil quality and all that sort of stuff, I believe. Am I, am I wrong in that? I'm pretty sure they are. You're absolutely right. It, it, it was just a, you know, by paying attention and watching, I, I learned over time that, that, at least in this area, they really like those alder trees. And then in the last three years, a new pair of bald eagles have moved in and built a nest on Montlake Cut, and uh, I call them Monty and Marcia for Montlake Cut and Marsh Island, and they, they elbowed their way in, they pushed Ava and Albert t- further to the east, and they pushed the, the pair from t- Tolerus further to mm-hmm. the north, and they just took over this quarter of Union Bay and Portage Bay, and uh, they've had some interesting experiences with their young. Uh, the first two mm-hmm. years, both times the nest fell apart, and two or three of their young fell out of the nest and had to have help from the Animal Welfare Society to to, to get back to health, but they made it. And they're oh, cool. Yeah, this year, their nest hung together. They raised one young this year, and uh, it flew from the nest without any problems. And, and uh, they're actually, I haven't, I, I think I wrote a post just the other day that they're, they're starting to expand their territory, and they're pushing the, the older bald eagles further to the north. So oh. they must be kind of feeling their oats, you know, they're, they're growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The interaction of species is, is a really cool thing. I had Paul Bannock on a recent episode. Uh, Paul Bannock is the really fabulous photographer and author who's written several books on owls and woodpeckers. Uh, one of the better known ones is The Owl and the Woodpecker. He, uh, he, you know, he talked about how owls and other species use old woodpecker holes. Since you know exactly where the woodpecker nests have been year after year, have you checked the old holes to see if they're being used by other species? Well, uh, actually, that brings up another story. I was actually watching uh, the pileated woodpecker nest. One, one year, they, they nested in the Arboretum. Uh, that, that's not their usual location, but they did mm-hmm. near the mouth of Arboretum Creek. I think it was 2017, if I remember right. And I was watching the nest at the time. The female was in the nest on eggs. And generally, during the day, it's the female in the nest. And as I'm watching... Uh, most people, I don't think, realize that wood ducks are one of the cavity nesting birds. And a female wood duck uh, it was accompanied by a male that's kept a little distance, but she came up to the woodpecker hole and oh. looked in the hole at the female <laughs> while she's in there on eggs. And of course, the female uh, woodpecker just kind of poked at her with the bill real quickly. Yeah. And the female just scooted away and just, you know, she was out of there. But. I'm sure that's quite a weapon those uh, pileated have on their face, I bet. Yeah, exactly. And uh, anyway, that inspired a post that had to do with the housing crisis, it was called. And, sure. Uh, a number of uh, the readers got together with me, and we built and installed 10 wood duck boxes around Union Bay as artificial cavities for the wood duck. Yes. Because there's just not enough old dead, dying trees that the Pileateds have made holes in to, mm-hmm. to really meet the size of the demand for the wood. Sure. And, so, yeah. and if they're making them in alder trees, I mean, you know, the, I, I would think that uh, how big is an alder tree get? Maybe 10 inches? Or it's not that big. So, you know, it's, it's barely big enough hole for a wood duck, I would think, but yeah, I'm sure I, it works. But they're getting... Uh, the, the old ones are getting quite, uh, bigger than that, maybe 18 to 24 inches even. Oh, my goodness. I didn't realize all the grew that big. Okay. They still look 
pretty small next to some of our other trees, but mm -hmm. but, but they're fairly good size. And uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, I, I measured uh, the current male pileated woodpecker, and I believe he's about 14 inches long. So he's not mm -hmm. nearly as big as this as he could be. And so mm -hmm. they, they, they get into the tree, you know, they, they do fine. But... <laughs> Obviously, they know what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they don't pick a tree that's not going to work. Right. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so it sounds like you're on a first name basis with a lot of these birds. Well, I try. Uh, there's, there's a lot going on. And, you know, I, I could easily mess up and be looking at the wrong bird sometimes, you know, because I, I can tell when I see Monty and Marcia in the nest, uh, mm -hmm. female bald eagles are always bigger. So that, that's a mm -hmm. first hint to begin with. But she also has a little darkness right behind her eye. And oh. Monty doesn't have that. He has just a bright white head. There's no, no uh, smudges at all on his. On his. And so when the two of them are relatively close, it's pretty easy to tell them apart. But their similar makeup is on... Talia and Russ, the northern pair from the other side of the bay, mm -hmm. they have a similar kind of markings. And so when you see like four of them, if you can see them sitting and perched where they're one on, or they're, each set is on their side of the territorial boundary, well, mm -hmm. then you can watch which way they fly when they leave and you have a pretty good idea of, of which ones you're looking at. But sure, you can never say for sure. You just, you know, you're, you're kind of guesstimating on some of this. But but it, it, it works out because you can you can really tell when one of the wrong birds wanders over to the wrong, <laughs> into the other bird's set's territory. They they get chased and, and uh, yeah, they get a little testy there when the, another yeah. uh, another member of their species is invading their territory. Exactly. There are probably some visiting bald eagles in the winter in that area. Are there not, or does that not attract it, uh, it, eagles it, in the winter? Yes, um, and they're generally uh, more often than not young. There's occasionally mm -hmm. some mature ones going through, but but often it's groups of young bald eagles, you know, less than five years old that still don't right. have the white head and the white tail, and they're uh, I kind of think of them as as uh, gangs of youth roaming the countryside looking for food. Sure. And, and uh, generally, if there's just one or two of them. The, the adults from the territory might run them off. But if there's three or four or five of them, that's a little bit much for them to handle. And so they don't sure. always just jump in there and, and chase them off. I did watch one case where the three young ones were out on Foster Island and uh, Albert was at the nest about, oh, half a mile away in Broadmoor. And uh, one of the young uh, bald eagles caught a fish and Albert came buzzing straight over from the nest, chased that young eagle in circles around Foster Island until it dropped the fish. And he picked up the fish and took it back and ate it. And uh, so he didn't chase them off, but he made them pay the tax for being there. Sure. Uh, they uh, they know who's boss of their little uh, territory, their pretty big territory, actually. Uh, so, Larry, how did you get interested in birding? Everybody has a birding story. Tell me your birding story. How did you get interested in birding and, and how did that evolve? Well, I was at the University of Washington in the mid-80s, and my roommate was uh, Marcus Roney. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I knew that. Okay, cool. Right. And Marcus had learned a lot about birds from a much younger age, and so he was already an expert by far. And uh, we would go hiking and camping most weekends. And uh, 
it was impossible for me not to learn about birds and it was exciting and fun to do. But uh, Marcus was just always pointing out, you know, birds here, birds there. Oh, look at that. Listen to this, see that. And uh, then in 1988, I think it was the first master birder class that Dennis Paulson and the Seattle Law oh, okay. on. Marcus got into that class without any trouble and, and loved it. And I heard about his rave reviews and, and so finally, almost 30 years later, after my children were grown, uh, I got to do the same thing a few years ago. And very nice. It was wonderful. And uh, Dennis Paulson is just an incredible educator and a very inspiring instructor. Well, both of those people are pretty inspiring people. I've had each of them on as guests before. Dennis is, you know, Mr. Birding and Mr. Literally Everything Nature in the whole Washington State area and really the whole North America. Uh, and Marcus is a good friend right here in Tacoma, he and Heather, and just always just a wealth of knowledge. They, yeah. you know, quietly seem to know just about everything. <laughs> I agree. And then there's just been a lot of other people who've been really helpful to me uh, and shared their knowledge. Uh, Ed Deal and Martin Mueller from the Urban Raptor Conservancy with Cooper's Hawks, Peregrine Falcons, and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dan Reef, whose knowledge of owls is quite exceptional. And uh, Bud Anderson's raptor classes have been incredible. And uh, and, and Dave Galvin, who uh, was in my master birder class with me, has taught me a lot about birds and bird songs and bird calls. Mm-hmm. So you, uh, you got introduced to birding by Marcus, your college roommate, and have been birding, you know, to varying degrees of intensity ever since, it sounds like. Yeah, it really picked up uh, in the last 10 years when I started taking pictures. That uh, it, it helps with the bird identification when you have something to refer to when you're done. It can. Cool. Uh, so uh, do you get birding much other than at the, at, now Lake Union and the Mont Lake, make Union and the Mont Lake fill, the, those terms used interchangeably? Union Bay. Union Bay, excuse me. I, in my mind, Union Bay encompasses more than the Mont Lake fill. The Mont Lake fill is, is uh, otherwise known as the Union Bay natural area on the north side of the bay. And then okay. the Arboretum on the south side. And then you've got uh, the Waterfront Activity Center in the University of Washington Husky Stadium on the west side. And, oh. and so I, I bird in all three of those areas. I live much closer to the Arboretum, so I probably am there much more often than anywhere else. But it just kind of depends on uh, how far I feel like walking that day. I, I try to do most of my birding with uh, my daughter's dog who, who needs a walk every day. And, That's uh, nice. So, and she doesn't like to be in cars. So that's uh, one driving factor. And, and it's also, you know, better for the environment if I stay within walking distance. Plus the moment I step out the door, I'm birding. So that it maximizes my time, you know, uh, spending it outside. I really yeah, that's that. very nice. Do you get birding much in other places? Or are you pretty much a patch bird? I'm just pretty much in this area. I, I've done a few trips elsewhere, uh, probably mostly with Marcus years ago, but I did get a trip up to Alaska like two or three years ago at, uh, just after Thanksgiving, there was, uh, one last river up there that hadn't frozen over and the bald eagles were just going crazy. And, uh, that was a particularly fun trip that I'll always remember. I bet you will. Alaska is pretty special. Uh, Larry, you mentioned the creeks that run into uh, the Union Bay, 
and uh, you mentioned a couple of them. You've, you've been particularly active in the restoration of, or restoration work on Arboretum Creek. Uh, tell me that story and how did, how did it come to be blocked and, and how are you uh, working to restore it? Well, I suppose it was probably in the 30s uh, when, they, when they put, or 20s actually, because a lot of the houses in the area were built in the 20s. Uh, they, they, they had to manage the water flow because of all the building of houses and roads and so on like that. And so most of the water that historically had been part of Arboretum Creek was put into the combined sewer system. And in particular, you, you may have heard the story that the upper half of the Arboretum Creek watershed was blocked by the filling that was done underneath Madison Avenue. And so the whole upper half, the, the watershed used to extend all the way down to Garfield High School historically. I mean, wow. before, before the high school existed. Uh, but when they put Madison Avenue through and, the, and, and changed it from the railway to the roadway and, and took out the trestle and filled it in with dirt, they blocked off the upper half of the creek. And uh, so the, the, what's left is, is really just, you know, people look at it and think of it as a ditch almost because mm. it's so small. And the upper portion of it, uh, north of Madison Avenue, even runs dry in the summertime because there's just no water flow to, to keep it going. So it becomes stagnant pools of hot water. And then as near the mouth, where it goes underneath Lake Washington Boulevard, it's just in a pipe. And it comes out of that pipe and drops three or four feet before running out to Union Bay. And there's no way for any fish to, to make that leap and get up there and get into sure. the creek at all. So not long after that first post about life after Eddie, I, I, I had taken a trip to Canada where I was up by Boundary Bay and I was looking at all the bald eagles up there and I thought, wow, they're really dense. I mean, there's a lot of bald eagles here. They're, they're almost like crows in Seattle, you know. And mm-hmm. then I, I thought back to Union Bay and at that time we only had two pairs uh, on the bay. And I stopped to think about it for a minute and, and it occurred to me that the primary distance difference is the abundance of food. And sure. So that led me to think, wow, what if we had fish in Arboretum Creek? You know, if, if, we, if the fish are able to uh, thrive around Union Bay and in the creeks, then the eagles are going to increase and, and life in general is going to increase among all the, the various different birds. And so I had this idea even then, uh, many years ago, about could we restore Arboretum Creek? And uh, during the master birder class, we went on a trip and as we're driving home, Dave Galvin was sitting next to me and I was relaying this, this kind of dream of mine. And he looked over at me and he said, well, let's do it. <laughs> and uh, Dave just kind of provided the, the inspiration to, to go from dreaming to doing. And so in 2017, a friend of his, Dr. Froge, uh, told us about these two springs that are uphill from the Japanese garden ponds and how they're being they're going into the combined sewer system. And there's no need for them to. They're clean, clean water, and, and they don't belong in the sewer, and they, ju- they just take up capacity there. And sure. uh, we ended up getting a, a small grant from King County to, to study the water quality and prove that point, and we did. And, uh, and then last year, we went back for a second grant and a fairly sizable one and we're now working with a team of engineers to complete a 10 percent design options so it's like initial options for how 
these springs could be reunited with the creek. Mm -hmm. Once we get these options fully fleshed out at the 10% level, then we're hoping that the stakeholders involved will choose the particular option that they're, they're willing to support. And then the last half of this grant will be to take that particular choice and get it to 30% design. And then in say a year after, a year from now, maybe the end of 2021, we'll be wanting to go for another grant, hopefully from King County, but other sources are possible to actually get monies to do the work and, and complete the design and, and build the connection between uh, okay. the springs and the creek. At the same time, the Washington Department of Transportation, when they decided to redo 520, the people in charge of the Arboretum negotiated with them because they were going to lose land and, and, and land was going to have to come back to the Arboretum somehow to, to justify all this. And part of the negotiations was, well, when you're done with 520, you need to daylight Arboretum Creek at the bottom end down there where it goes under Lake Washington Boulevard. So that is coming. And if we can have the springs or year-round flow that, that, that Dave and I are working on, Friends of our right. Creek. So if we can have year-round flow coming down the stream and have access for fish coming up the stream, and, and in addition, we, we're, we're uh, working to, to inspire a lot more native plants planted around the stream. When, if all of this comes together, we're expecting to see a dramatic increase in life uh, in the stream and around it for birds and fish and everything. In the oh, world. yeah. So it'll still be a small stream, but sure. thriving and full of life. It should be a real inspiration for folks in the city. Salmon, un unfortunately, seem, it seemed like salmon seemed to be the driving force for uh, a lot of these sorts of things. Is there any existing salmon run? Or once you get a habitat in place, will you need to reintroduce some salmon from another run? I don't think there's any... Uh, near Arboretum Creek at all, or, you know, mm -hmm. historically, that would be long ago, before 1916 or whenever they put in the cut. That's a, a whole other story. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the, there's also the issue of is Arboretum Creek with its relatively gradual elevation change, is it right? Uh, does it have enough flow and oxygen to really be a, a salmon stream? Sure. And so that's a little questionable. But over the, the years and talking to various people, uh, different ideas have come up. One, one idea is that if the stream is thriving, then, for instance, the salmon that are up uh, Cedar River, there are still some up there uh, mm -hmm. that, that people are working with. Uh, as those young salmon come out and come through Union Bay and th then they have to run through Montlake Cut and out to the right. water, well, maybe they'll turn in at Arboretum Creek and if, if it's a nice thriving stream and, and put on a little weight there and take a little rest relaxation before they head on out. Sure. So, it, could, it could play that role for sure. Right. So that's one possibility. And uh, there are also smaller... Uh, fish that may not be seagoing fish, you know, that, yeah. that could very easily move into the area. So it, we, so far, I have never seen any fish eating birds and I've never seen any fish in the creek. I mm -hmm. have seen one crawdad, native crawdad <laughs> in the creek. Cool. <laughs> that was kind of exciting, but that's very a, cool. the life so far in, in our Arboretum Creek. 
So when you uh, when you bird the Union Bay area, it, you typically, I'm assuming, you probably go out in the morning uh, and spend you know an hour, two or three. What what sort of a what would be some of the birds you'd see? What would a typical bird list uh, sound like? Well, you know, not just how many species, but any particularly interesting species by season. Yeah, it's uh, in the spring. Um, I'm I'm often listening for the cooper socks and the pileated woodpeckers, uh, mm-hmm. just because their nests are so much fun and and their young are so much fun to follow. Um, this last year was incredibly exciting. It uh, was the first time in decades, and also maybe it could have been a hundred years or more, that uh, ravens nested near the arboretum. Hmm. I know they had at least two young, a couple of us think maybe there might've been three, but we, we haven't, you know, didn't get a chance to prove that, but uh, it was just tremendously interesting to listen for the ravens. Uh, I, I got to see them taking the sticks to the nest tree. I got mm-hmm. to see the young, I couldn't see the nest, but I saw the young in the trees nearby much later when the adults were bringing them food. And it just the the various sounds that the ravens make it's just incredible i don't know if you've ever heard the water drop sound that a raven can make i but think i have it yeah sounds like a drop of water plinking into a a bucket mm-hmm. of water from a great height and it's it's the most amazing thing and and they do various different calls i mean the, there's a a particular call that the raven made when a red-tailed hawk was approaching the nest and the closer the hawk got the faster the call came until the raven left the ranch and chased the red tail out. And, and I was kind of stunned because I wasn't sure who was bigger, the red tailed hawk or the raven, but it didn't matter. The, <laughs> the raven had the, had the uh, motivation and, and the red tail hawk just wanted to get away. But uh, th- so the, those uh, uh, going to see the bald eagles watching their nests, uh, already Monty and Marcia have started uh, putting sticks in the nest for next spring. There's Same a, down here, the bald eagles at Point Defiance are just, yeah, it seems like every other time you see them fly by, they're hauling a branch. Some of these branches are pretty serious branches. <laughs> yeah, they get big. Um, up here, they most of, they, they tend to always, almost always use uh, cottonwood branches. I don't know if you've noticed down there or not. but I I have to say, I haven't noticed that they're, I would doubt it because they're, I mean, over near Point Defiance, I mean, there's probably some cottonwood somewhere, but I don't know where they, they'd have to go a ways, I think. Huh. It's a pretty dense, uh, dense dug fir and forest, and there's alder, but probably down by the water, there's some cottonwood somewhere. Yeah. It's, I, I've, I've listened to the, to, to Marcia, watched her, you know, fly full speed at a branch and hit it with her chest and just <laughs> heard the snap as it broke. And I mean, it had to be at, an inch in diameter at least. Wow. The cottonwoods are particularly easy to break off, relatively speaking. And, and uh, I'd say, I, I think I've only seen one other type of branch being <laughs> taken to the nest that wasn't a cottonwood in our area. Do but, they nest in a cottonwood or is it in a different tree? Uh, two out of three in the, on Union Bay are nesting in cottonwood trees. The, the third nest is in a, in a very big uh, coniferous tree. Um, mm-hmm. But... But I think in general, you know, from when I've been to other places up in the Skagit and so on, the far the majority are in cottonwood trees in, that I have seen anyway. And the, 
part of it, I think, is the shape of the tree because, you know, about two thirds of the way up, it starts to fork and it creates this high fork, this position where it's, it's a good spot to build a nest. And good spot to fasten a nest to, huh? Right. And there's, there's no other tree that I know of, native tree, that has that uh, natural shape to it. You know, most of the coniferous trees, uh, Douglas fir and so on, they, they get much, much smaller as you get towards the top, unless the top's been blown out, in which case, you know, then you have an exception. But right, it's a, almost like a symbiotic relationship, I think. Uh, the young drop a lot of fish and things at the bottom, which have to fertilize the cottonwood. So I sure. think it works both ways, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very sim- symbiosis works for a lot of things. That's cool. Uh, I, I got to get back to the Arboretum Creek uh, topic for just a just a moment. Uh, do you have other collaborators in that? You said you've got a friend who works with you on that. Who else are the driving? I mean, who's what's the the mo- who's pushing that project besides yourself? Well, Dave and I are are definitely the ones that have been committed to it. Um, there's a number of other people locally that have have started to to help us with it. Uh, I think we had 25 people at our last community meeting in October. Uh, the the people that are probably uh, most dedicated are from the stakeholder organizations, and and uh, they've been involved for three years now at least, um, and that includes people from Seattle Parks and Recreation, uh, Seattle Department of Transportation, uh, Seattle Public Utilities, King County. Uh, UW Botanical Gardens, um, I'm leaving out somebody, Seattle Parks Foundation. Um, Maybe Seattle Audubon, I don't know. Uh, Seattle Audubon has shown support and, and uh, come to our, our original meeting, uh, the project manager for the, there, um, involved with this type of work. It has been very helpful. Josh has been very helpful to us. And so I mean, we're getting a lot of support. I think I, I remember the, the thought about, well, what kind of additional support would we need? And, and uh, right. in that line, you know, there's, there's support in terms of uh, financial, which is all, always going to be an issue, um, although we're doing pretty good with the current grants and the situation that we're at right now. But mm-hmm. it's time to build that, that funding will be a, a, a big thing. We're, we're hoping King County will provide the bulk of the funding because taking water out of their uh, sewage treatment system gives them extra capacity. So right. it's a it's a win-win. It, it, it gets the water out of their system so they can deal with water that really needs to be treated, and uh, it gets the water back in the Arboretum Creek. But sure. With the current financial situation, we're not at all positive whether King County is going <laughs> to be able to follow through with that or not. Of course. So, so that's an issue. Um, we're also looking for people who would help us as uh, work as volunteer work. Once we're through the pandemic, we're going to want to be doing work parties on a monthly basis to to help restore native plants along the stream. Uh, this spring, for the first time, uh, I saw a uh, native rufous hummingbird come to a black twinberry right beside the creek. And Very nice. That was a twinberry that was planted as part of the... Uh, loop trail enhancement that was done in 2017, uh, a native plant. And Mm -hmm. uh, it was just incredibly exciting to see that hummingbird hovering there, looking at that flower, uh, taking the nectar. And that's, you know, in in a miniature kind of 
what we want to do is is if if we can help get the native plants there and and just have that thriving ecosystem then we're going to see a lot more birds and then once the water's connected we have some small fish in there then we're going to start seeing kingfishers and hopefully green herons and blue herons sure you know the whole the whole thing yeah um, so we need we need volunteers once the pandemic's over to help us with planting and uh we also want to take a, a very open and inclusive approach um and and we want to do monthly walks along the creek uh introducing people to both the plants the birds the fish and, and everything that's there and i i would love to be involved with you know uh, Native Americans that might teach us about the way some of these native plants were used. I, I remember with going with Marcus to the Macaw Indian Reservation 30 years ago, and there, there was a little museum there. Mm -hmm. and, uh, there was a bentwood box there. Have you, have you ever heard of what a bentwood box is? Mm, I've heard the term, but I don't know about it. it it's, it's just stuck in my mind, and it's the kind of thing that... I. I, I think it's just incredible is the native Americans would take a slab, a piece of a Western red cedar, which splits very nicely into planks mm -hmm. and they would take a section, maybe four feet, three feet long. Mm -hmm. And then they would make uh, it divided into four uh, pieces, imaginary pieces, if you will. Mm -hmm. And at the uh, three spots that would make that mm -hmm. division into four equal pieces, be the corners. Along the plank, they would make grooves horizontally across the plank in the three locations that mm -hmm. about halfway through. Then they would be able to bend these, and so that you would have a box shape where right. it's connected all the way around, but you have all four sides of the box. They mm -hmm. put a bottom on it, and they'd put uh, pegs in it all around to hold it together. And once it was completed, they could put like a, a leather handle or whatever on it. Fill it with water, and they could put it over the fire, and the water in the box would boil, but the wood would not burn, because the water was taking the heat from the wood, and taking it away and keeping the wood below the temperature at which it would burn. Very cool. Yeah, to me that was always been inspiring, and and uh, if we can restore the stream and get it as close as we can with what's left to its native habitat, then we just have all kinds of opportunities for educational opportunities for the folks in Seattle that, you know, maybe they can't make it to the Olympic National Park or Mount Rainier, but, you know, a daytime walk through the Arboretum is certainly feasible and it could be uh, very inspiring to, to learn more about nature right in your neighborhood or close by. And, you know, everybody who lives, uh, up, you know, really close to a little bit of wonderful nature, you know, some of those people are going to be inspired and the world will be a little better place down the road. Uh, that would be the goal. Yep, exactly. And little things like uh, seeing a Rufus hummingbird uh, feeding in a, in a bush that you had something to do with planting, that's definitely in your face positive feedback. you got to like that. Yes. I didn't get to have as much impact on that loop trail project, but I'm I'm hoping that uh, in the in the future, when the daylighting happens at the at the bottom end of Arboretum Creek, that that maybe I can have a little bit of influence on the planting and the way that work is done, uh, so that it benefits the the creatures in the area and inspires more native life.
Very good. Well, Larry, that's a great story uh, of how uh, a specific area really close to home has been not just your patch, but a place where you know the birds by name. You really uh, have uh, visited over and over in all of the seasons and have a feel over a decade or more of how how are the, the whole ecology and the avifauna and biofauna and all of that fits together and are now working to improve that area. So that is fun story. I like that. Thank you. It, I, I still have a ton to learn, but it's fun every day to see, see things, uh, you know, like the... <laughs> the diving ducks going after the milfoil on the bottom of the bay, the, uh, and then the bald eagles coming and, and eating, eating the ducks. I would, never would have dreamed that European milfoil was a indirect food staple for bald eagles, but it, it seemed to be that case in the winter. You know, uh, starlings are a food, and or rock pigeons are a food source for our uh, peregrine falcons as they continue their comeback from DDT. So, you know, all things uh, play a role. You know, we can, we can call them introduced pests, but, you know, they're here and they play. They're now part of the part of the chain of life. Yeah, we have to learn how we can best adapt to coexist with, with all the life that's here and, and maximize the diversity. That's kind of the mission of our Friends of Arboretum Creek is maximize the diversity of life and while rekindling the love affair between Seattle and nature. Well, that's a, that's a well-written uh, mission statement. Larry, I'm going to wrap up by just making sure I tell listeners that I'll make sure I put in the podcast notes and in the blog posts that I put up about each episode links to both your blog and to the uh, the what's the site called, the Friends of Arboretum Creek or something like that? Right. It's uh, just arboretumcreek.wordpress.com. Okay. Uh, so I'll make sure I get both of those links in the uh, in the podcast notes and on the blog post that I put up associated with it. Uh, check out Larry's Larry's website. It's it's always fun. If you uh, get tweeters, if you subscribe to tweeters, uh, I don't know if every week or every post you put on there, but frequently you'll see it on tweeters and, uh, and so you won't have any trouble finding the link from there. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Thanks for yeah, thanks for being on with me today, Larry. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Bird Banner Podcast with Larry Hubble. I enjoyed talking to Larry, learned a lot about that area. It's really fun to have uh, someone on the as a guest who is a patch birder. Larry, uh, he is very into birding uh, the Union Bay area, probably knows as much about that area as anyone, and has documented a tremendous amount of that on his blog. Yeah, he is really intimate with the birds, not just as species, but as individuals in that patch. He knows a lot of them by name. That was really cool to hear. So I had fun talking with Larry today. Hope you enjoy. Make sure you check out the blog posts that I put up associated with this and check out Larry's blog. Uh, there'll be a link to that blog on the podcast notes and in the blog posts that I put up associated uh, with this episode. So thanks again for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day. <laughs>